0: Uh, Welcome. We're glad you're here. You Arcadians, we need to get some of this stuff figured out. We had three people RSVP for midweek Bible study last night and we had 65 show up. Um, For this, we had 40 people RSVP and I don't think there's 40 people here. So maybe we should start with just basic computer skills rather than social media. I don't know. It might be good. I'm sorry. Number, yeah, just basic math. Okay. Well, I'm gonna have to get my daughter to teach that. So, um, we're glad that you're here. I, some of you are like, "Why the tie? What's going on?" I did a memorial service this morning. So, um, that's and I just never got a chance to get home and get changed. And also, I'm a man, so I only want to wear one outfit all day long. <laughs> Isn't that right? Yeah. yeah. Jackie will wear four outfit, outfits in a day, and like, whatever, you know, she does she's, so anyway, not here to talk about my marriage, I don't think, so a couple of disclaimers before we get started. Um, first of all, it's interesting, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going to come at this topic uh, quite a bit tonight from a different discipline than theology, because I have uh, studied in a different discipline also, and that's human communication theory, so you're going to You're going to hear that side of me tonight that maybe you haven't heard before if you come to this church. I know there's some people here who don't attend here, but um, we're going to do a lot of communication theory stuff tonight. Um, And and I think it's interesting, so that's social science research. And one of the things that I think is very interesting about social science research is if it weren't for sin, there would be no social science research because the reason we do research like that is because things are not the way they're supposed to be. Now, most researchers in... Uh, um, uh, research universities uh, would never say it like that. They don't even want to use that terrible little S word, you know. But they're willing to say, well, we're, things are not the way they're supposed to be, and so that's why we do research to try to figure that out. So uh, a lot of the research that we'll talk about tonight is from that perspective. Theologically, it's because we're fallen and we're sinful. Um, the other thing I want to mention tonight, and I just hang in there with me, Uh, on this, Um, I do not hate social media, okay? Uh, The challenge of presenting this material tonight, I found, is that uh, even for people who have been on and deeply immersed in social media for years and years and years, the vast majority of you have never heard this information before. And it's a little bit frightening, it's disruptive, it's disconcerting, it's bothersome, and the reaction by some people is that they're just sure I don't like social media. Uh, I'm not making any value judgments. We're going to talk about what I think God thinks of social media, but I'm not making any value judgments. I'm just pointing out what's going on with human beings as they interact with this technology. That's all I'm doing. You can decide for yourself whether you're not you like social media, but I'm on Twitter, and I do, a lot of, I do a lot of social media stuff. Our church is on Facebook and all that stuff. So I don't hate social media. But be prepared to have a little bit of disruption. At least that's just been my experience. So let's get started. More than 60 years ago, the philosopher and theologian uh, Jacques Ellul proclaimed this. This is 60 years ago. No human, no, I'm sorry, <clears throat> no social, human, or spiritual fact is so important as the fact of technology in the modern world. And yet, no subject is so little understood. No subject is so little understood. We're just flying into this stuff without ever stepping back and really thinking about it. Just two months after Alul said this, Billy Graham gave a speech and he said this. So again, this is 60 years ago. He said this, we live on a diet of up-to-the-minute news and 15-minute celebrities while we ache for a transcendent and timeless touch in our lives. Now, that should hit home with most of us, even if you just love social media. In other words, we're really screwed up. Can I get an amen on that? We're screwed up. Okay. Uh, a researcher at Cornell University, David Pizarro, he's an assistant professor in, in psychology, PhD in psychology, and he researches in that area, and he says it this way. Listen to this. Technology projects the myth of control over our mortality. Technology projects the myth of control over our mortality. So we're going to talk about technology tonight, more specifically social media, which means that we're going to talk a lot about digital communication because that's the context of social media. Um, I'm going I'm to define social media I'm going to make three observations about social media and do some communication teaching in the midst of that. We'll get to the question, what does God think of social media? Uh, and then we're going to have a few more observations, concerns, and conclusions. And if there's time at the end, we'll have some Q&A. If not, we'll just uh, get out of here. The plan is to try to end around a quarter to uh, eight. At least that's what the, the website said we're, we're doing. So, and we will have some slides for this as well. Also, the reason I have the mic on is because we're recording. Um, so, uh, Joseph DeVito, who is no relation to Danny DeVito, this is Joseph DeVito, the communication scholar, and he writes uh, communication textbooks. He defines social media this way, any digital communication that can connect geographically and or culturally disparate people who otherwise might not be connected. Now. That's a good thing, right? Isn't that a good thing? It's okay to say that's a good thing. That's not a trick question. That's a really good thing. I think that's a very good thing. Um, so w- if you want to talk about what are the items that, that are social media, uh, usually we kind of think of, you know, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram right off the bat. But um, under this definition, we need to understand that texting and blogging and Yelp and YouTube, and Vimeo, and eBay, and Amazon, and comments on essays and blogs, all of that is also social media and a host of other things, too. It's much bigger than we maybe think it is. We're, we're engaged in social media a lot more than we think we are. So here are some observations. We're going to start with the first one, which is the realities. Um, I will tell you that I have an older... Um, I'm looking around the room so some of you will identify with this. I have an older but I think helpful perspective about some of this. I'm, I'm from the analog generation. I'm way before, you know, any of this stuff happened. When I was 10 years old, if you had told me that we could do the things now with technology, I, I would have said, that's a fantasy. There's no way that's going to happen. Um, growing up, Uh, I identify with Louis C.K. You don't hear his name used a lot in church, but I identify with Louis C.K. You know, I grew up in a home where we had one phone and it was a rotary dial. And, you know, if somebody had two zeros in their number, you never called them because it was too much work. I mean, that's a lot to do. Um, And we didn't have answering machines. It was pre-microwave. In fact, in my home until I was seven years old, we had something called a party line. Okay, now some of you who are younger are like, I have no idea what that is, sounds fun. Not really, you would have 10 lines, 10 different houses or apartments on the same line. And so before you could use the phone, you had to pick up the phone and listen to see if anybody was on the line. And then if nobody was on the line in any of the other houses or homes, you could, you could use the phone. Of course, everybody uh, who had a party line got really good at learning how to pick up the phone quietly so they could eavesdrop on everybody and everybody knew everybody else's business. When that was happening, you know. So y- you fast forward to today, and you see what's what's going on. And I will tell you that uh, there's always been resi- resistance to new technology, right? It, it, some of us feel like I just got this figured out, and it's already obsolete, you know. And so we resist this new uh, technology. I'm, I'm glad Tom and Sandy are here because because uh, I can quote Tom now with him here. One of one of his favorite things to say is. In, when he was in the late 60s and early 70s, he used to tell people, you know, don't worry, the computer is just a fad. You know, that was his way of resisting the new technology. By the way, today, he says, and the jury is still out, we haven't decided yet, right? We don't know yet if, it's, if the computer is going to make it. Um, but I will tell you, I we're not going back. We are not going back, and I don't want to go back. I don't, I don't want to go back. I, I like the progress. All progress comes with challenges and problems. That's just a fact. But I, I like where we are. Uh, Thomas Friedman, the, the economist, wrote a book in 2006 called "The World is Flat." Has anybody read that book? "The World is Flat." It's interesting. He—it's a little play on words. You know, the whole idea of when when guys like me were in our age, we were in grade school, we grew up. You know, the story of Christopher Columbus, they thought the world was flat, and if they sailed out into the Atlantic, they'd fall off the edge of the earth, all that stuff, you know. And so now the world's round. Well, now he's saying, no, it's back, it's flat. But what he's talking about is the, the digital technology has flattened all of these um, previously inaccessible areas in our world. So um, if you saw Goodwill Hunting, uh, one of the things that Matt Damon said in the middle of that movie was, You know, I don't need to go to school and get a PhD, all you need is a library card, okay? Well, digital technology and the internet is our library card today now. We have access to anything. Um, And and that bothers some older PhDs because they feel like they went through it the old way and now people are smarter than them and they have all the letters after their name, but that's just the way it is. Technology is flattening things out, making things um, equal and much more accessible. So, this thing is just simply not going away. And I think uh, theologically, the reason, the primary reason why social media is popular because it connects us and gives us access is specifically found in the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 1, verse, verses 26 and 27. God's created everything, and he gets to day 6 and he says, uh, Now let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And so they made man. And, and after his, in his image, and after, our, after uh, God's likeness, and male and female, he created them. Um, this idea of, of God's image and likeness, this has been a, a theological point that's been debated literally for centuries, about what does it mean to be made or created in God's image and after his likeness, and people say, well, is it something physical? Is it because we're rational beings? Is it because we have souls? What is it That makes us in God's image or likeness. I I would argue that it's because we are relational and community self-arranging beings. It's because we're relational. Because God is relational and He lives in a community. It says, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God lives in community, in relationship. And it's interesting because there's lots of research coming out now from um, Stanford University uh, that is talking about how, once again, the researchers have affirmed that human beings are primarily relational, uh, self-arranging into community beings. And I see this research and I'm glad for it, but I also kind of go, yeah, well, we've known that for 4,000 years, okay, because that's what scripture has always taught us. So, Theologically, the reason that social media, I think, appeals to us is because it appeals to our desire and need for community and relationship, and we see this helping us as a tool to help us and accelerate that, and in many ways it does. However, it's not always um, the healthiest way. So those are some of the realities of social media. Here are some of the assets, and I'm sure you can think of many other assets that I don't have on here, but obviously connection is a big asset for social media. We're connected in ways that we never were before. Um, I do a lot of weddings, and I remember doing weddings 20 years ago, and there was always this concern about whether grandma and grandpa could get there and how much trouble it would be and blah, blah, blah. Well, now it it seems as though people who are getting married today aren't as concerned about that because they're just gonna be able to get connected through um, the internet in, in order to participate albeit long-distance, but still be able to participate uh, in the wedding. So we're, we're connected. Um, there's a couple here. I've done hundreds of weddings, literally, especially after moving to Arcadia because demographically is a very young congregation, and, and, I, and I really love doing them. A lot of fun. There's a couple here. Some of you know them, James and Jillian Dufresne. Um, they're, uh, of the hundreds of weddings I've ever done, I, I married them twice in four months, Okay and not because they got really mad at each other after the first honeymoon. Um, What happened was they planned their wedding for uh, April three years ago, and um, they had it all planned, big party, Sashi, the whole thing, and we were ready to do it. And then in the fall, um, uh, James' brother who lives in London announces that he is gonna get married, and he's getting married in March, and it's gonna be a destination wedding in Malta, And he wants James and Jillian to go there. And so it's March before their wedding, and James and Jillian are saying, well, we want to be able to go and stay in the same hotel room for a variety of reasons, including saving the money, but that's going to be a problem if we're not married yet. And so uh, he was lamenting this to me, and I said, well, why don't you guys just get married? And I volunteered Moreland's backyard without him knowing. I said, why don't you just get married in Moreland's backyard? in January in a small, quiet ceremony, just a real quick, quiet ceremony, we'll actually sign the certificate, and then you can have your big party um, in April. Well, what was interesting about that small, quiet ceremony in January was that James' other brother, Perry, was there. There were 15 people there, right? Remember that? And James' other brother, Perry, was there, and he was streaming the wedding live throughout the entire internet so his entire disparate family and friends could see the thing anyway. There is great connection and access through this stuff, and, and I think that's wonderful. Um, one of the assets is that we can so easily and readily find people from our past, which is really fun and really interesting. It, uh, information, the access that we have to information, quantitative and qualitative information is also uh, really helpful. Um, my older brother, Walter, is, uh, he's 67 he's, in my opinion, he's the smartest person I've ever known in my life. I've always looked up to him. Uh, he has a master's degree in history um, from a, a, a school in California, at, um, Golden, Golden Gate, and um, not, that, not the seminary, but the university, and he also has a law degree, and he ended up becoming a lawyer because he found out that history teachers can't make any money, but um, Uh, and and a judge, but uh, I remember in 1971, he wrote his master's thesis, and uh, you know, he passed his master's thesis, defended it, and all that, and it was 87 pages long, and um, I've read it. It's on the history of the death penalty in California, and um, in 2004, I was writing my master's thesis for um, um, human communication theory, and I remember, I've never beaten Walter in anything intellectual uh, or academic, and so uh, I thought, you know, I have my chance now. Um, my goal for my thesis for communication is 88 pages, okay, because his was 87. Um, and my, my thesis ended up being 141 pages. But think about the actual comparison. Who really worked harder on their thesis? I would argue Walter did. He typed his the- typed on a manual, not even an electric, on a manual typewriter, okay. And the way those those theses, thesi, whatever, go, um, in, in those days, if you made one mistake, you had to retype the whole page. And if you wanted to move a sentence or a word or a paragraph, you had to retype all of those pages. And you had to proofread it yourself. He told me these stories of how he used to proofread by reading backwards. Because if you read forwards, um, you, you know, your brain tr- uh, plays tricks. You're the one who wrote it, so you know what's supposed to be there. You actually... Uh, see what you think is supposed to be there and not what's really there. If you read it backwards, you can find those typographical errors, 87 pages of doing that. And he had those little three by five index cards where he's writing notes. Not me. I was connected to everything, you know, and it was, in that regard, it was so much easier, not to mention it was ASU. So um, so just the the ability to do research and And um, articles and essays. I mean, Twitter is probably my primary resource now for helpful essays in theology because I'm connected with the Gospel Coalition through Twitter. So that's wonderful. Inspiration and hope. Um, You know, we have communities of hope and inspiration. We have communities of suffering where you can share your struggles like never before. Um, That's really good. Obviously, convenience. You know, it's one, um, I think Bruce, are you, Bruce, you were sharing with me the statistic in December, one out of every two dollars that was spent on Christmas was spent through Amazon, and Amazon really is social media in most respects. It's just social media where you get stuff, which is, and fast, which is, which is pretty cool, okay? So very convenient. Okay? I find myself buying even iced tea on the Internet through Amazon. It's just amazing what you can get there. Um, for business, and, you know, pretty much you got to have it. You have to have um, business. I was meeting with a good friend of mine um, two days ago. Yeah, Tuesday. Um, his name is Matthew Deering. He owns an, an acting studio up by Shea 32 at 32nd and and uh, Shea. He's doing very, very well. Um, and, and he's a young guy. He's in his early 30s. And when we were talking, I hadn't even brought brought up that we were going to do this tonight, but one of the things he said was, you know, I'm not that much into social media, but when I started my business, I had no choice. I had to have it. If I don't have it, people don't find me because this is how you get found uh, anymore. Businesses, it's, it, it, you know, you people will not ha- find you if you don't have it in your business even yelp as much of a problem as it can be i listen I, there might even be somebody in here who works for yelp we've had employees of of, of theirs in and out of redemption churches for a long time i am sorry to say this but i will tell if somebody needs to review yelp because every time i talk to somebody else they're like well yelp is satan so they, they don't like yelp very much but but it, read your reviews you know if more than three or four people are saying the same thing. You might have a problem and you can correct course. And at least you can figure that out and find that out. Um, Facebook even has become, over the last couple of years, Facebook has become more business to business than person to person, which prompted uh, one essayist to say, even Mark Zuckerberg has sold out, okay? But the biggest and most expansive growth now in the Facebook corporate organization is because of business to business, not person to person. So you have to have it. Uh, And social media, in in many ways, has made storytelling much better, much better. And we all love good stories. So all those are assets, and there's there's more. But then there are some liabilities. Um, Social media has also exacerbated the problem of fake news, so fake storytelling. Fake storytelling all over the place. Um, Also, the other side, uh, the liability of people from your past being able to find you. So that's fun, but it's also a liability in many ways. There are people you don't want to have find you, and they can find you. Um, Kim Cash Tate wrote this, Marital infidelity is turbocharged by Facebook. Marital infidelity is turbocharged by Facebook. As a pastor, again, you know, 15, 20 years ago, when I would deal with infidelity, it was generally started at work. Now, almost exclusively when I'm dealing with infidelity, it's starting through social media and Facebook. That's just a reality. That's just a reality. Um, Forbes had an article recently, really helpful and important article. Um, John Medina, who is a, and I'm going to read this because I don't even know what it is, but he is a developmental molecular biologist at the University of Washington School of Medicine. Title of the article is Being There. Uh, he was talking about, this is a, this is a um, molecular biologist, PhD, uh, he's talking about what his research is showing is there's been a, an increased popularity and use of business tools such as teleconferencing, you know, Skype and those kinds of things. But much better and, and uh, much more efficient than Skype. Th- this teleconferencing thing—it's just—it's exploding in growth. And the attraction, of course, is that you don't have to pay money for a plane and a hotel, and you, have to, you don't have to go anywhere. You can just conduct business from uh, from where you are. And what he's saying, as a mon- molecular biologist, is that um, that may be good for basic stuff or stuff that where there isn't a lot risk, a lot of risk, or things riding on the line, but uh, he, he says, you know, essentially, if, you ha- if you're trying to negotiate, say, a million-dollar deal, you need to get your little fanny on a plane and fly to Chicago and pay for the plane and pay for the, uh, the hotel and meet with the person in person because there are physiological and chemical interactions that are going on that you don't pick up consciously, but your subconscious picks it up. And they've run all these kinds of tests that demonstrate that if you're talking to somebody through a screen, you have virtually no ability to understand or know whether or not they're being deceptive, but we can pick up cues of deception in person. There are things that we pick up in person that we cannot pick up through a screen. He he says, you got to go there. That's, That's why the article was titled, Being There. He says, being there is worth it. So if you have to err on one side or the other, get on the plane and go. Because we haven't developed uh, digital technology or social media yet that can, that can actually channel the physiology and the chemistry of people, which is a problem. Uh, other things that are talked about in terms of digital communication and social media is the difference between synchronous and asynchronous uh, communication. So, uh, you might, chronos is the Greek word for time, okay? And what's the prefix syn mean? Sorry. I heard it. Together. Yeah, or with. So, same time, okay? Right now what we are by the way you're in a church you're going sin, he's misspelled it and it means missing the mark. But um no, it's same time communication. What we're experiencing right now is same time uh communication. Face to face same time communication. So, what's asynchronous communication? A is negation. So, anything that is done digitally is not in real time and the problem with communication that's not in real time is that first of all you don't get genuine dialogue and so the chances for misunderstanding grow exponentially have you ever been misunderstood in person of course you have it's way worse when you're communicating digitally when you're communicating with something that's mediating your communication Even texting, which at times can feel like real time, even that is considered asynchronous because you have to receive the text and then actually type something back, which is slower. And there's all kinds of things that can happen even just in that 10 second lag that are never helpful to efficient and good uh, comprehensive communication. So this is a problem. And then the next problem with asynchronous communication is it's decontextualized communication. You lose out on several other channels of communication. Lots of non. Nonver- the reason we invented uh, we invented emoticons was because we don't have nonverbal communication in most digital communication, like uh, tonality of voice, um, uh, volume, uh, speed of the words, and you don't have all of the the gestures. So nonverbal communication is laid aside. And by the way, sixty to seventy percent. Of communication is actually nonverbal rather than verbal and we tend to believe the nonverbal communication over the verbal if, if you're communicating to somebody and you say one thing but your body's saying another thing that's called putting the receiver of the communication in a double bind and invariably what they believe is the nonverbal part not the verbal so I'll ask Jackie I can tell Jackie's kind of not quite herself she's a little upset and, and I'll say hey Is there something wrong? And she says, no, why? Okay, she said no, but what's her body saying? Okay, so I go, okay, she said no, and I leave and I don't worry about it. But what she's saying is, come on, okay, but you don't have that though with decontextualized communication. And one of the things that we say in the communication discipline is that when it comes to interpretation and meaning, the three most important rules in communication are very similar to the three most important rules in real estate, which is location, location, location. It's context, context, context. The more decontextualized your communication is, the the greater chances you are of having misunderstandings and making mistakes. And I mean big mistakes. Things that... It's so much faster to be able to do it this way. But think about all the times that you've had to go back and spend eight hours clarifying one simple little text that was taken the wrong way. How much time have you really saved? Again, I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. I'm just saying you got to think about this a little bit more, okay? And then you get into this thing called the disinhibition effect, and this might be the most frightening thing. The disinhibition effect is is simply this, when we are face-to-face with people, when we're in close physical proximity with people, there are certain filters that we have that prevent us from just, from saying some really wrong stuff. It's called, it's called inhibition. We have an inhibition against saying maybe what we feel, but knowing that that's just going to create trouble. The disinhibition effect, according to the research, this is 15 years of research now, says this. Anytime you have a screen of any sort mediating your communication, so a phone, a pad, a computer, anything, anytime you have something mediating your communication, so now I'm talking to Jim, but uh, it's being mediated through our phones, my inhibitions go down, and I'm willing to say all kinds of things and communicate all kinds of things that I would never do, in, in the course of civil face-to-face discourse. Have you noticed that social media has kind of birthed this uncivil discourse that we have? This is the reason why, is the disinhibition effect. And what's interesting is now they're starting to talk about, this has been around long enough now, um, uh, more than 10 years, now they're starting to talk about the fact that there's this sort of boomerang effect, okay? So you have somebody who... Um, uh, Ten years ago was sixteen years old, and they 're just they 're charging forward with Facebook and all this stuff they 're going crazy with digital communication and social media and now, because they were fifteen when this started now they 're twenty five their neural pathways have been completely retrained, unlike mine. It takes a lot longer to retrain mine if I started on this stuff when I was forty seven it's going to take longer to retrain my neural pathways. It doesn't take as long to retrain the neural pathways of a 15-year-old when they're 25. Now what's happening is, in fact, our face-to-face communication with younger people is becoming more and more uncivil, and there are fewer and fewer filters. So one researcher says this, if you're beginning to feel like things are less civil than they used to be, Don't let anybody tell you, oh, that's just you pining for the old days. It's real. It's really happening. And I don't know that this is necessarily a good thing. So Medina wraps up in this article, the molecular biologist, and he writes this, the more sensory poor the communication, the more likely you are to make mistakes. The more sensory poor your communication, which is digital communication, the more likely you are, and social media, the more likely you are to make mistakes. The communication scholar John Jeanette, somebody I really appreciate, uh, he has this pithy little quote. Before there was Facebook, we used to get our actual faces together. And that's a problem. That's a problem. Um, Fuller Seminary uh, One of my good friends is Tom Parker. I've known him now 30 years. He's the executive director of Fuller Seminary here in Phoenix. And uh, I was with him Wednesday, and we were talking a little bit about this, and he said this, at Fuller Seminary, if we're going to disagree, we're going to do it up close. We are not going to hide behind the skirt of cyberspace. That's their mantra and their rule now at Fuller Seminary. If they find students arguing through social media, they shut it down. Not they don't shut down their Facebook page, but they go and they, t- they, they perform, a, 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 in a sense, like church discipline on them, only it's seminary discipline, which I imagine is a lot worse, okay? Uh, furthermore, there's trolls, you know, you, I don't know if you've ever been trolled and all that stuff, and, 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 and uh, all these people that have fake profiles or even, th- they're not even real people, you know, there's uh, computers and uh, just generating these profiles now. To go out there and you're not even arguing with a real person necessarily anymore. You don't even know if it's a real person. That's happening too. And there's hundreds of thousands of these, these what they call bots out there. So you've got to be careful of that. I have a Personally, I have a basic rule. I don't post to or read comments um, in, in that comment section of essays and articles because that's just where all this stuff starts um, really blowing up. Um, then there's voyeurs. So uh, I have a, one friend um, that I know, she's very attractive, and for a long time she was extraordinarily active on um, social media sites, on her social media sites, uh, letting everybody know, this is one of those things, letting everybody know where she is at all times. Oh, I'm here now, I'm here now, I'm here now, I'm here now. And what she didn't realize was that there was a guy out there who was watching this and started catching her patterns. And one morning she walks into the Starbucks, which she goes into every weekday morning at around a certain time, and there's this guy waiting to talk to her and creeping her out. So, voyeurs, you've got that. Okay? And that, by the way, that happens way more often than you think. Uh, One of the most challenging. Church, this, this is several years ago, but one of the most challenging church discipline situations I ever had was um, a person in our congregation um, started to um, stalk another person in our congregation who was married and then started to harass his wife. This was a woman who was stalking a man, started harassing his wife through social media, and we had to go and finally tell her, um, you can't do this. Okay, I won't. It increased, and we said, okay, you can't do this anymore, and you can't be a part of this community anymore. And the next thing we get are emails saying, it doesn't matter. I'm, I, I'm still on Facebook with them anyway because I have all these fake profiles out there that they friended me, so I can see what they're doing and watch them, and I'm watching them. And so we ended up calling the police. We had to get the police involved in this as well. So we didn't really have this problem in the past. Um, something else that it, it has caused is... is um, uh, it has accelerated um, uh, identity theft. It has completely accelerated that. You know, 40 years ago, we didn't even have an identity theft squad in the uh, FBI, but uh, we do now. And then there's ragers, just people who just rage, and and these, what they call flame wars. Okay, and you've probably seen examples of that. Uh, Guy Benson writes this, social media's number one export is outrage. Social media's number one export is outrage. Uh, Former Gawker journalist Sam Biddle who had a very interesting experience on social media where he ruined another woman's career. Uh, He said this in the wake of that, realizing what he had done. He never intended to, but he did. He ruined this woman's career, and he writes this. Jokes are complicated. Context is hard. Rage is easy, and it creates traffic. It creates traffic. That's why people go to websites now, is to see all this raging going on. Uh, one of the biggest reasons also that social media is so attractive is, you know, when you, when you get a like or a, or a heart or a friend or whatever, or a follower, whatever it is, when somebody affirms you in some way, you get a little jolt and it, and it feels good. You get a ping of adoration. We'll talk a little bit more about, the, uh, about that in, in a few minutes, but it feels really good. But again, what we forget to understand is that with adoration comes scrutiny. You're also being scrutinized out there. So every time you take a chance for that adoration ping, it's possible that you're going to get scrutinized, and you're not going to like it. You're not going to like the scrutiny. So much for your privacy. And I'll tell you, if you're on social media, especially like Twitter, and you get one little thing wrong and people are scrutinizing you, Okay, they make hay with that as long as they possibly can. And you gotta put up with that as well. Think about all of the people who have actually put their crimes on Facebook, and here's the best part of that. They're shocked when the police show up at their house. And I, and I don't know if you, I'm not talking at all about the thing that happened in Chicago recently, I'm talking about even way before that. People bragging about stuff they've stolen and Things they've taken from their employers, and the the list is long of people who have been arrested because they put something on Facebook. And here's what um, law enforcement will tell you the number one thing that they say when they come to arrest these people, the number one thing is what? Well, that's a violation of my privacy. That's a violation of my privacy. Okay, you know what WWW stands for, right? World Wide Web. I'm not sure what it is you don't understand about that. And here's the problem, you you can't have it both ways. You're either out there or you're not. And if you're out there, you're taking a risk. And we need to understand that. And there really are no rules. Uh, For a long time, and maybe it's still true, but I know for a long time, the Marines had a little saying, every man a rifleman. So every man in the Marines, every man, no matter what, was gonna be trained in how to use a rifle, no matter what they did, okay? Well, In our world today, with social media, like it or not, every person a public figure. Every person is now a public figure. Think about the ramifications of that. Uh, Bill Maher, again, somebody we don't often quote in church, but he writes this. We now live in a world where the only privacy we have is inside our head, and even that's being assaulted. And then Neil Brennan, who is actually a scholar in this area, He writes this, many of us have worried for years about Big Brother watching us. Well, Big Brother is no longer the problem. Now we have millions of little brothers keeping an eye on us. That's true. Um, Another problem before we get to the question, another challenge that I want to take you through before we get to the um, question of what does God think of all of this? This is yet another challenge that we have here. If you've ever taken a communication class, the most basic thing that they teach you in communication is the, communication, the basic communication model between two people, sender and receiver. And I'm not gonna put the whole model up there, but I'll, I'll put up this, the first part. Um, you have somebody who wants to communicate something to somebody else, so we call them the sender. But because all communication is a form of code, the only way you can communicate with anybody is to put your message into code. That code can be language or nonverbal communication. Many of us think very carefully about uh, the way in which we encode our nonverbal communication. It's not just willy-nilly. We're actually trying to make a point and use it to make a point. Um, This is a code, too, this two-dimensional board. So there's lots of ways that we code our communication, but we we have a way that we encode all of our messages, each of us, individuals. And so we're also known as the encoder. And then we send our message along channels, the code, uh, channels carry the code to the receiver who then is also the decoder because they receive the message and they have to decode it. So the receiver has a code And now they're trying to decode your message using their code, but you encoded your message using your code. So you can see right out of the gate, even if you speak the same, I'm talking about even if you speak the same language, there are no two people in the whole world that have exactly, precisely the same code. Some of us have very different codes and that causes huge problems and we may not even communicate with those people at all because the codes are so different. But even with people who are very close to us, the codes are nuanced, at least, in difference, and those those nuanced code differences cause big misunderstandings and cause conflict and cause problems. And one of the interesting things about communication in the culture in the United States that research has shown is that once the receiver receives the message and decodes it and applies Uh, interprets it and applies meaning to it if they get it wrong and you want to come and tell them it's wrong they don't buy it there's something about the human condition where once we've assigned meaning we stick with that meaning even if the sender can present clear and compelling evidence that we've interpreted it wrong that's generally how it works in other words here you go We live in what's called a receiver-oriented communication culture. A receiver-oriented communication culture. In other words, in the United States, the person that controls the interpretation and meaning of message more than anybody is always the receiver. Now, that's frustrating, I know but it's true also. In other words, your intention, as pure and as honorable and as wonderful as it may be, really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. You think about the conflict that you've been in. The vast majority of your conflict is probably the result of this very issue right here. By the way, there are sender-oriented cultures. Southeast Asia, some Middle Eastern cultures, but we are not, we are primarily a receiver-oriented culture. Doesn't matter what your intentions are. And one of the most frustrating things that we experience in, in our communication with others is trying to spend time, is, is spending time trying to explain to people what our real intentions were and trying to change people's minds about how they've interpreted our, mes- our messages. So um, there was a 1965 song by the animals, you know. I'm just a soul whose intentions are good. Oh Lord, please don't let me be misunderstood. See, that was prophetic, okay? That song was prophetic from 1965, all right? D- do you get this here? Does this make sense? Well, here you go, one more thing that complicates. there's a lot of other things I could do. I have, a, I have a whole hour lecture that I do just on this, on this um, model. But one other thing that complicates this also is something known as the false consensus effect. A few of you have heard me talk about this before. What's the false consensus effect? It's the tendency on everybody's part, it's the tendency for all of us to overestimate the degree to which other people agree with our beliefs, values, opinions, attitudes, likes, dislikes, and preferences. So, as a communication sender and encoder, one of our biggest problems or one of our biggest obstacles that we have to overcome is the fact that we communicate already thinking that everybody else agrees with us anyway. How's that working for you on social media, by the way? You know, this is the, by the way, this is the reason why we have Fox News Channel and MSNBC and all the talking heads from both of those um, uh, uh, Stations—that's an old term, word, uh, old w- world world word—but anyway, those stations, M- uh, MSNBC and Fox News, all the talking heads there—they all use this language. Well, everybody knows and everybody agrees and everybody thinks. Well, if that were true, we wouldn't have Fox News Channel and MSNBC because those two couldn't be any diff- any more different. So people don't think alike. We don't have the same perspective. Our perceptions are way different. But our assumption is—is is that every. Everybody likes the same music I like. Everybody likes the same music I like. Everybody likes the same preaching I like. Okay? And boy, that gets in the way of our communication. Already they're misinterpreting us because we're a receiver-oriented communication, and you add the fact that people just simply don't think the way we do even though we think they do, that adds to the complications as well. So the question, what does God think of social media? Well, God is primarily interested, I believe, in faith and character in every context, knowing full well that contexts change, but he's interested in faith and character in whatever context you're in. Now, consider what has not changed, because contexts change all the time. But what has not changed since creation? God is one of them, holy and pure, his character. What's the one other thing that hasn't changed? Human beings, sinful, fallen. The nature of human beings bent towards corruption. And, and again, I, 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 it's amazing that I have to say this, but if you don't believe that human beings are bent towards sin, you just haven't been noticing what's going on in the world for the last 4,000 years. We got issues, okay? Look at the empirical evidence. The The only difference in time is that we just have different technology now to manifest our proclivities, sinful or not. We just have different technology with which to be able to do that. So what I'm getting at is this. God is not concerned at all about the tool, but rather our attitude towards the tool and how we use it. That's what he's concerned with. Doesn't care at all about the tool. Doesn't care at all about the thing. Do you, think, do you think God was sitting up in heaven or wherever heaven is, over there, wherever, uh, when Gutenberg was trying to put together the, the printing press? And God was like, no, don't do, don't do it. Don't do it. It's going to cause so many problems. Don't, that thing is going to be evil. Of course he's not. Of course he's not. You think of the most misquoted Bible verse ever by far. Money is the root of all evil. That's not what it says. It's not what it says. It's the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Who's the culprit in that verse? The money or us? It's us. He doesn't get, the money can be used for good or bad. He's concerned about us. The money doesn't have any moral value whatsoever. I'm just going to keep on this for a second. You know, um, cameras are now used to record pornography. So let's deem that all cameras are now sinister and evil. So everybody's got to turn their cell phone into me because I'm your spiritual leader and I don't want, because you have a camera on your phone. So you're evil, you're wicked. I mean, it's just silly, isn't it? Did we ask these questions before? I get this question all the time. God must hate social media. I I don't think he has an opinion about social media. He has an opinion about how we use it. But do we ask the question, what does God think of TV? What does God think of radio? What does God think of the computer, the internet? Um, Actually, many of those things have been used for really, really good things, and we're glad that we have them. Sure, they've been used for evil things too, but there's the, the agency of the human being behind that tool being used. Uh, one is, um, I had a, somebody ask me one time, um, d- d- do you think rock and roll music is evil? And I said, not really. And she said, well, I, 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 I guarantee you rock and roll music is evil. And I said, well, why is that? She says, because there's so much singing about sex and death. And I said, well, then opera's evil too. A lot of singing about sex and death in opera, but she never thought about it that way. Here's why we do this. This is why we do this. We don't want to be blamed. (laughs) We don't want to take responsibility. That's why we blame inanimate objects for our own sin. Think about Genesis chapter 3. Okay? God comes to Adam, and he says, what is this that you have done? What does Adam do? The woman you gave me. And it's been that way ever since. I didn't have anything to do with it, God. I, I, I was looking for ESPN, and this porn site just, I don't know how it happened. It's a stinking computer. i got to go in and get this fixed at the Apple store. You know? In his autobiography, Billy Graham wrote this about television, about television. Like most technologies, television in itself is morally neutral. It is what we do with it or don't do with it that makes the difference. We are the moral agents, and the tool in our hand can be used for good or evil. Again, talking to Matt Deering, this is just fresh in my mind, talking to Matthew Deering on, on Tuesday, um, he was talking about how he's just absolutely determined, now that he is on social media, to only use it for good and for building up uh, p- other people. That's the only thing he wants to do and he won't get sucked into any of this other stuff at all. He just, he just stays away from it. If he has to be on it, he just stays away from it and then here you go. He cites Ephesians chapter 4. Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth but only that which is good for the edification and building up of the one who hears it. So there is some theology, a lot of theology that we can apply uh, to this. So the last Part the following realities and liabilities would push against what God sees as wise that's the challenge is we need wisdom in dealing with social media that's what we need be on social media but be wise about it be smart about it protect your hearts when you're on social media so one of the big problems is that social media really pushes into our flesh as do all idols it does feel good when you get noticed you know, it's just another way of, of, of getting aff- affirmation and to be popular. How, how many of you saw the movie Quiz Show? Anybody see that? Okay, yeah, okay. You guys, all right, you're coming to church too much not going to enough movies. That's a problem, all right? So um, it's, it, was this, it was a story about the corruption on the show Quiz Show with Dan Enright and, and, and all those guys. And um, they, they were uh, talking to one of the persons who was getting the answers in advance and was winning all this money. And he was talking to his wife, and this is in 1954, and, and he's talking to his wife, who's getting tired of the whole bit, and, and he goes, listen, that box is the biggest thing since Gutenberg's printing press was invented, and I'm the biggest thing on that box. Social media has the ability, if we allow our flesh to rule, to push us into that wild desire for affirmation and popularity. People truly believe that fulfillment and success and lasting joy can come from just the right social media use and account and profile and story and and notice. John Piper says this, What is always true about idols is that they all seem to work at first. And then Tim Keller writes this, we are so quick to tweet Facebook and Instagram, but we treat prayer with a sense of delay. That's a problem. And he's right. That's a problem. So, one of the first big problems that this helps push into is this thing called meism. I uh, me- mentioned her earlier. Kim Cash Tate writes this Social media is where bragging got its wings. Social media is where bragging got its wings. Um, uh, This is what I got out of that, okay? Let's say you live in a neighborhood with, um, you know, three-bedroom, two-bathroom houses, lots of families and stuff. So one day you decide on a Saturday, you're going to go out and you're going to stand in the middle of your neighborhood and you're going to summons all of your neighbors to come out. Everybody, come out here! Come out here! I have something I want to tell you. Come out here. Come on, everybody get out here. You bring everybody out. And once they get out there, you start telling them just how wonderful you are, how great you are, how you're killing it at work, and you got a promotion, and you ate with Robert Redford the other day, lunch, and, and oh, by the way, we had tacos, and you just start oozing about all oh, how great you are, all this stuff. You just start doing this, okay? How long do you think that would last? You'd have that person committed, right? We do it on Facebook all day long. We do it on social media all day long. Look at me, look at me, look at how great I am. And then we like and we go, oh, and we we exalt and we exalt and we exalt. If we had those people doing that to us in person, we'd want to shoot them. But we think it's great as long as we've got this thing between us. That might be a little bit of a problem. Social media has legitimized something that we all despise in others. Pride, self-centeredness and bragging It's legitimized it. We'd never continue hanging around the people we follow on social media if they did those things to us in person. We just wouldn't. Um, in the midst of this, uh, there's this new show, kind of new show on Netflix that I do not recommend, but as your pastor, I feel I must watch so that I can tell you not to watch it. <laughs> it's called "Black Mirror.") Um, This show is kind of like a new Twilight Zone. Has anybody, okay, you don't have to raise your hand. Okay, yeah, okay, yeah, you've seen it, okay. Um, it's, it's, um, It's the logical conclusions future of all current tech and social media crazes. They take everything to its logical conclusion, everything about social media. And season three, episode one, was the most interesting one to me. If you've seen that one, that's the one where every person is actually a Yelp account. Every person is a Yelp account, and every time you uh, interact with another person, even if you're just walking by them, the phone senses who that person is, and you get to rate them one star to five stars. So you, And you're required to rate every person that you come into proximity with and your phone registers their presence. You must rate them. And then your rating then becomes... The basis for how much you pay for housing. How much you pay for food. How much you pay for transportation and health care. And what line you get to get into. And, and what, if, if you have an emergency and you're in the emergency room and you're having a heart attack and dying, but you're rated a 2.3 stars and somebody else has a little two-stitch cut on their pinky and they're rated a five-star, they're going to go into the emergency room ahead of you. You think about it. Oh, that's silly. That's just goofy. Think about the proclivity of human beings to press into things that aren't healthy for them. They're saying that this is, this is coming. The lower your rating, the more you pay, the worse your employment is. You can't get into any schools. You have no status and power. It's terrible. Uh, Joseph DeVito again, he says this. Uh, we have never lived in a more narcissistic and polarized culture before today, and social media is the primary reason. Now, he's not a theologian, so I would have written, and how we use social media is the primary reason. And if all you ever think about yourself is is yourself, if all you ever think about is yourself, where do you think you're going to end up? Where do you think you're going to end up? Has that ever ended well for anybody? Paul writes this in Philippians 4, 8, and 9. Whatever is true... Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything that's excellent, if there's anything that's worthy of praise, think about these things, and then put these things into practice. Practice these things. If all you ever think about is yourself, that's that's your God, that's going to drive your life, and it doesn't end well. Paul says, think about these things. Scholar Thomas Sowell writes this. This is kind of funny. The age of artificial intelligence has led to way too much artificial stupidity. Uh, Mickey Pangburn saw that this afternoon when we were running through slides, and she said, he's wrong. It's led to way too much real stupidity. <laughs> so meism then leads to, you know, something that has been around for a while that we call TMI, but too much information. But it's still true even though it's sort of passe to say TMI. You say TMI now out in the public sphere and people are like, oh, that was so five years ago or whatever, but it's true. Um, uh, Joan Jett, some of you know who Joan Jett is, and I am secure enough in my own heterosexuality and Christianity that I can talk about Joan Jett. Um, Jackie keeps dragging me to her concerts, that's why. So um, anyway, in 2013, she wrote a new song called TMI, and the whole thing was about the fact that Social media has invented this world and this culture and this public sphere where we'll put anything out there and we don't care. And it's unhealthy. Here, here you go. Joan Jett is telling us that some of our behavior is unhealthy. We've really gone off the deep end if that's true. Okay? Uh, the fact that those selfies stick, just a great example. Okay? The fact is, here you go, real life is what happens in between social media pictures. Do you understand that? The problem with this TMI stuff is it's creating envy and jealousy in in other people, because we look at that stuff, we don't realize that their real life is a mess, they're just giving us this one little snapshot, and and we begin to pine for having a life like theirs, and we end up with that same old problem. We want to be somewhere else, we want to be someone else, we want to be doing something else, and we want to be with someone else. We're not happy in any of our contexts, and... Part of it is because we're obsessed with all of this this information. Social media leads to discontentment when we see others only at their best. It's kind of like having a marital affair. You know why people fall in love with the person they're having the affair with? There's a psychology behind this, you should read about it. It's because you only see them at their best, and you think you can't live without them, So you divorce divorce the loser you're with now so that you can be with the winner that you're having the affair with. And all of a sudden, you're beginning to realize, oh, they're no day at the beach either. And that's what social media is like. It's like having an affair all the time. It's not real. Philippians chapter 4, Paul writes, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. We, We don't have enough contentment in our world. I've learned... In whatever situation I am to be content, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him, Jesus Christ, who strengthens me. This always leads to envy and coveting, which, again, isn't helpful. Uh, This is interesting. I read this once about six months ago. I assume it's true. Um, Men... On um, dating sites, so eHarmonyMatch.com, Match.com, I'm DesperateForanyone.com, Wh- whatever the, the sites are, okay. The, the, the two most common profile lies are, met for men, um, their height, which, again, by the way, ladies, this just kind of shows you how stupid we are. You know, he says he's 6'2 and he's really 5'9. Is she not going to notice when you finally meet? I don't understand this at all, okay? You must have a really low IQ to go on these sites and do this, okay? Do you know what the number two lie is? It, it's much more nuanced. It has to do with letting her know that you have a sensitive side. Here it is. I like to take walks. It's a lie. It's a lie. You know, you've been seeing him for a month, and you've asked him three different times, hey, you want to go for a walk?" No, <laughs> I want to watch a game. <laughs> Okay, it just doesn't work long term. But, but, but we, lie. This is, we lie because we see all of this other stuff and we, we feel like we have to present something that isn't real. 60% of information on resumes now is inaccurate. 60% can't trust anything you see on a resume. The only reason we hired Tyler is because he's the only one who told the truth on his resume. It was filled with sin, but at least he told the truth. No, I'm kidding. Here's the truth, and you've heard me talk about this before, especially if you've done any uh, premarital counseling with me. Uh, The truth is is that social media has accelerated this idea that we all have to be finished products. I'm a finished product. I'm perfect. I'm wonderful. I'm the best uh, I can ever be. I will always be this good, and I'm the best you're ever going to have. Now, is that reality? Here's how Scripture treats us. Scripture treats us as a work in progress, Scripture says in Philippians 1 6, and I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the day of uh, Jesus Christ. You are a work in progress. You're not perfect. You're not a finished product. Quit lying. Scripture says, Paul again in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, though the outer person is wasting away, day by day we're being renewed inwardly. We're a work in progress. We're a work in progress. And he says in, in Romans chapter 8, he says we are being conformed to the image of God's Son. We're being conformed. We're being sanctified. That, that's the, the biblical truth about who we are. We're a work in progress. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't market yourself in the marketplace. That's not what I'm saying at all. Just don't fall for the hype. Especially don't fall for the hype about yourself. That's a problem. And that leads to this kind of this last observation, which is something called social capital that James Davidson Hunter talks talks about in his book To Change the World. Fantastic, very thick, but fantastic uh, book. He talks about how uh, we have a new kind of capital in our world now. You know, we have the, the capital of wealth. We have the capital of resources. We have the capital of power. We have the capital of time. um, We have the capital of status. um, We have all these kinds of capital that we can collect and we can use for barter. He says the biggest kind of capital now that it seems like everybody's infatuated with is something called social capital. Social capital or notoriety. How much social capital do you have? How many followers do you have? How many friends do you have? That's what's important now. And, and in fact, there's another kind of capital out there that we never talk about, and that's the capital of wisdom. And that's really what we need. We, we need to have our accounts filled with the capital of wisdom. We need wisdom to swim in these waters. Wisdom is imperative because social media appeals to our flesh. The, the neurology and physiology of this is that Literally, you get, a little, you get this little ping when you have a like or whatever, or somebody affirms you on social media. There's actually a little release of chemical in your brain, and, and you start creating these neural pathways, and it becomes an addiction. It becomes a form of c- chemical addiction. H- have you been around people who absolutely cannot put their phone down to even have a 30-second conversation with you? They're they're obsessed, actually they're addicted. They're addicted to this stuff. Literally the neural satisfactions of affirmation and validation. But is the affirmation and validation real? And like like I said before, adoration always leads to scrutiny. And who among us, by the way, who among us can survive the kind of scrutiny and power of scrutiny that the World Wide Web gives people? You can't hide anything, ultimately. And I know it, it, at Redemption Church, we have somebody at, at uh, Tempe named Jim Mullins. How many of you know Jim, okay? Okay, now, I would, I would suggest to you that Jim is kind of the exception of everything that we've been talking about here. Um, this guy is really good and wise and patient and smart about social media. He's, he's the only one I know really, that I think has been able to actually make a difference on social media that means anything. The problem with having Jim around, though, is that people look at Jim and what he's doing and they go, oh, I can be Jim Mullins. I can do that. I can do that. Have You ever had a conversation with Jim about how hard he works at it and how long it has taken him to get somewhat proficient at it? He says, for all the stuff that I've ever posted on Facebook, I'd like to show you the volumes of things that I didn't post on Facebook or on social media. He said, it takes a lot of work to do this moderately well, a lot of work. And the vast majority of us really just don't want to do the work. We want the notoriety without the work, without the discipline, without the hard work. And and one of the one of the things that one of our pastors talks about, Cody Kimmel, he says that uh, he talks about it this way. He says one of the problems with social media is it's brought about this new kind of ministry where people really think they're doing ministry. He calls it the ministry of awareness. So you have these <clears throat> social justice warriors on social media, and they're fighting the battle and they're doing good. And when you talk to them, you say, "Well, what are you really doing?" Well, I, I post, I tweeted, you know. I posted something on Facebook. So really, how, how long was the tweet? Oh, 124 characters. That, yeah, you're right. That's a big sacrifice, man. Yeah. The ministry of, oh, I'm making people aware that there's a problem. What are you doing about the problem? I'm making other people aware so that they can go and do something about it. I'm doing my part. Cody calls it the ministry of awareness. Well, let me ask you something. How does this line up with Matthew 25? Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 25. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brother, you did it to me as you did it not tweeted it. Both Pizarro, David Pizarro, I mentioned him earlier, and Medina mentioned him earlier, both of them are now citing research, so the psychologists and the molecular biologists, both of them are citing research, uh, and they call it an expansive body of research, listen to this, that links, so there's a correlation, links heavy use of smartphones and social media with increases in depression, aimlessness, anxiety, loneliness, isolation, and narcissism. Now get this, so you're going, uh, okay, wait, wait for the zinger. Here's, here's the zinger. And the amazing thing is, they say, that our, that our human wisdom solution to these challenges is more apps and a stronger social media presence. We're depressed because we're on social media all the time and the answer, our answer is to just be on social media more and get more apps. That's humanity for you without the guidance of the wisdom of God. Reed Shukart, who's professor of communication at Wheaton, writes this, the church's true calling in a technological society is to do the slow, difficult work of embodying God's love one soul at a time. Embodied love is profoundly inconvenient, painful, and even excruciating. But the opposite is not hatred, it's efficiency. I can change the world through social media. And and God says, why don't you change your world one soul at a time by the power of the Holy Spirit? Shukart gets it right. All right. We have negative two minutes for questions. I had no idea it was, uh, we were going that late. I'm sorry about that if you had any questions. Anyway, I hope that was helpful. I pray that it was helpful to you. I'm going to go ahead and pray and, and uh, let us go, but if, if you I'll hang around for at least another three or four minutes if you have any <laughs> questions. I told Jackie I'd be home around nine, so. Uh, Lord God, thank you for your mercy and your wisdom, and even in the midst of this, we know that We have our challenges, but we know that you are sovereign, and you're real, and your love uh, conquers everything, and so we just pray that we could press into that and use your wisdom as we engage in uh, the technology of today and the technology of the future, because we're going to have to. We have to go into this. Uh, Your son calls us to be in the world, but just not of the world. So give us the wisdom to be able to do that and live in that tension. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thanks.